Hello and welcome to Movie Maker. I'm Eric Stoyer. Uh, it's been a few weeks since I've been on the show, uh, but I've been listening to what Tim's been doing, and uh, he's had some really great interviews up. I've got a couple good interviews that I've done recently, and so I'm going to be uh, putting together some some more episodes over the next few weeks. And uh, I wanted to uh, kick off my triumphant return to the podcast with this interview that I did with Yasmin Feta. She's a documentarian and has a film out. It uh, comes out in the U.S. today, and it's called Ayuni. And I should start by saying that I know Yasmin personally. We met a few years ago through mutual friends. And the reason we met is actually because Ayuni, the film that she was working on when we met, is in part about another one of our mutual friends. So it is about, in part, Basil Cartable. Uh, was a friend of mine who was a Syrian open internet activist. He was uh, the Syrian project lead for Creative Commons, and he was a volunteer for projects like Wikipedia and Mozilla. Uh, he was disappeared by the Assad regime, meaning he was arrested off the street and detained, kept in a secret prison, and ultimately he was he was killed. Disappearing, being being forcibly disappeared, is the subject of Ayuni, and this is a tactic that's been deployed against many people in Syria who the regime there has deemed to be enemies of the state. And Yasmin, in her film, tells the story of uh, Basil as well as the separate story of another man who was disappeared and named Father Paolo Daloglio, and he was uh, someone who led an interfaith group out of a, a uh, Syrian monastery and became an activist against oppression. Yasmin tells the story of these two men through a lot of archival material that she collected from friends and family of Basil and Father Paolo. And she also uh, spent a lot of time, and, and there's a lot of footage from that time that she spent with uh, Basil's wife, Noura Ghazi, and Father Paolo's sister. So I do urge you to see this film. It's important to me personally, of course, to keep Basil's name and story alive and out there in the world. But it's, it's also just a, a wonderful film that sheds a lot of light on some pretty dark subject matter. It's, uh, it's gotten great reviews in The Guardian, and there was another one today in the Boston Globe. Uh, so don't just take it from me. It is, it is worth your time. You can watch it online at truestory.film, where it is available in seven languages. And I hope you enjoyed this interview with Yasmin Feta. So I want to start by asking you to explain in the most basic terms what what it is we're talking about when we talk about people in Syria being disappeared. So because on the one hand, I think it's kind of self-explanatory. On the other, I'd guess that there are a fair number of people who are listening to this who who know vaguely about some of the things that have been happening in Syria over the past decade plus, but might not really know or understand the extent of the crisis. So just explain what that means. Yeah, I mean, forcible disappearance, it's a war crime. It's something that happens to people. That means someone's been taken, whether they were kidnapped or arrested. And then whoever's captured them, whether state forces, so um, the army or police officers or militias, armed militias, um, and they disappear the person. They give you, they don't admit they have them. You don't know where they are. You don't know what's happened to them. There's just complete silence. And so forcible disappearance is this really cruel <laughs> tactic used really to silence people. And I think that's one of the big issues that's happened in Syria, besides like the squashing of a, of a revolution, besides the massive bombardment, chemical wars, uh, weapons usage. Um, I mean, there's been so many things, but one big one uh, is the disappeared. And that's not going to go away. And for a kind of justice and accountability, it's something that needs to be addressed and families need to know what happened to their loved ones. And a, and a huge part of the the torture that this brings upon people and their families is the lack, lack of fully knowing what's happened, whether, yeah. you know, 
you, you never know is, 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 you know, did they just up and leave? Have they, are they still alive? You know, it's, it's, it's huge part of the, the tactic, wouldn't you say? Yeah. I mean, and actually they never just up and leave. It's actually something done to someone. That's why people are forcibly disappeared. It's done to them. Um, and the difficulty for families is they don't know if they should grieve or wait and hope, you know, and most of them are stuck in this like weird in between place. Um, it's a really strange emotional space to be in, you know, um, and in making Ayuni, it was interesting because we did it over many years to see how that kind of emotion transformed over years. It doesn't go away, but kind of just how it transforms, <laughs> you know, um, it doesn't get easier. I mean, you just don't know what happened. Imagine your brother, your partner, your child, you just don't know what happened to them. Um, or you can guess what happened to them. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. They're very likely to have been tortured, you know, and maybe killed. Uh, Ayuni tells the story of two men in particular, so Basil um, and Father uh, Paolo Dell'Oglio, uh, and, and they've been disappeared. So t- tell me a little bit how you came to making this movie and telling these stories specifically. Yeah. Um, so it's really a personal connection. I knew Father Paolo over many years, and I'd made several films with him and his community in Syria. He sets up this um, interdenominational uh, monastic community kind of in the mountains near Damascus. Um, and I'd made several films with him. And after the revolution started, he became quite active in that. And I thought it was quite interesting how his kind of personal change to become this quite revolutionary priest um, it was really fascinating to me. So I, I contacted him to kind of make a new film with him. Um, and we met up again. And what was really interesting about him in his monastery is he would get people together to talk. You know, that was kind of what he did. People who maybe didn't agree with each other, didn't know about what other people thought. Um, and he would create a space of discussion. And I thought that was interesting. And he did that kind of once he became more involved with the revolution. He set up a TV talk show. He would get people together to do that. So I met him, filmed with him once in France. Actually, he was in Paris. And then he, a few months later, he had smuggled himself into Raqqa to try and negotiate the release of kidnapped journalists. And he himself was then kidnapped. And that led me on the path of understanding this like massive issue that was happening in Syria. And then Basil, I knew him a little bit. He's friends of good friends. He was in prison for many years um, uh, in Syria and, uh, you know, Three years after of his imprisonment, he was taken from his cell and also disappeared. And so that was when I sort of reconnected with the story and met his wife, Nora. And that sort of led me on the path to, to making this film. So it kind of started in bits and pieces, if that makes sense, you know, um, through connections to people and then trying just to grasp what it means. How was it to tell the story of these two men without having the ability to talk to them directly. So you handle the storytelling in a very beautiful and elegant way by working with the people, these, uh, these women who love them and who are not giving up on the idea that they may still be alive. But as, as a filmmaker, what is, what is it like to tell these stories without access to the people themselves? Yeah, it's interesting because this film ended up being made from material, I guess maybe half material that wasn't filmed or intended for this film. Um, it was made up of archives. Um, so I couldn't speak to Paolo, obviously, after he was kidnapped, but I realized I had this archive of material with Paolo that I myself had filmed with him. And I realized that this suddenly got a new importance and a new significance. Like this person had been silenced, but here was this material of him in his voice, you know, and that when I realized if I could tell the story in the present as much as I could, 
then I would try to, you know, and I, I could try to kind of construct a story with Paolo in the present. And with Nora, she showed me and shared with me archive that she had that her and Basil's friends had filmed with them together. I mean, you see them as a young couple, you see them hanging around and messing around. Like those very short moments, I felt said so much um, about their relationship in the present. So it was kind of, I guess, lots of trawling through archive and gleaning material to see what was there and to try and construct it in people's voices, kind of in the first person as much as possible. I'm always interested when I talk to documentarians who are using archive material, like what, what that's actually like to sit there with that material. Cause it's got to take months and years just yes. to comb through yes. it and really get an understanding of what's there yeah. to make sense of it, to create context around it. So just in a practical sense, as a filmmaker talking to maybe other filmmakers who are doing this, what is it, what is it like? And what do you, what do you have to bring to the table in order to get through that? I mean, it's pretty interesting because you're sort of sifting through material to see what's in there and you don't necessarily know what's in there. And you have to try and imagine what you've got. I mean, it was so many hours and I was editing with someone who didn't speak Arabic. So I'd have to pull something out, put on like some rough subtitles so that they could also work with it and see if we could do something with it. I mean, it was interesting. Paolo's material I filmed. So it's sort of like a weird memory of mine, even if I didn't remember all the details. But when I saw it, I remembered it because I'd experienced it. I'd embodied the moment. But with pa um, sorry, with Basil's footage, it was quite a different thing because there was this hard drive of material that he'd been helping collect of areas under siege that had been filmed by different people, um, including material he filmed. But it wasn't documented in that way. It was just as we watched it, we were like, oh, that's actually Basil <laughs> filming, you know, that's Basil's voice. Or sometimes the camera would turn and we would see that it was him. Um, and that made me and the editor realize we just need to keep looking because we don't know what else is in there. Um, and then just finding those little moments. I think that's the thing with archive is like, you just try to find those little moments that maybe tell you something bigger, you know? Um, yeah, it's quite a painstaking process though, but quite a beautiful process. So you spend so much time with them through watching mm, this material yeah. over and over. And so you, you get to know them in this way. I mean, you get to know specific moments and specific parts of their lives. You probably pick up little yes. things that they do and say that no one else probably even notices because you're spending so much time with specific moments over and over and over. So I, I, I wondered as you were building this film over the years, yeah, how did you find that the character's connected to each other so like the more you got to know them through making the film and doing the research what did you learn about how they were the same yeah that's interesting because editing does that you you spend so much time with someone and it's not in a way you would spend time with someone in real life <laughs> you know you just press play and there you are with them you know um but kind of watching because yeah paolo's a priest you know and basil was like a hacker and programmer and it was I guess by spending time with them, I realized in their different ways how they were so engaged with what was happening in Syria, but also committed to for change, but also by enabling a space for people to share, to talk. I mean, Paolo was larger than life, very loud <laughs> character. You, you couldn't ignore his presence, you know. Basil was much quieter, kind of more behind the scenes, but I, I started to see how they sort of, um, you know, uh, complemented each other in a way. They didn't know each other necessarily, but they sort of, what they were doing complemented each other. And that's, I started to see these connections. And even though Nora and Paolo's sister Mackie, who's in the film, you know, I was filming with them and meeting them, 
when you edit, you also spend this strange, intense time with someone that they're not, is not a two way, <laughs> you know, it's kind of one way. Um, even there, I started to see the like, it was kind of the complementary aspects of their stories, you know, how one person would express something was different to how another, but together, they sort of told us something bigger. How long front to back did it take to make the movie? Interesting. So, um, you know, I mentioned that I met Paolo and filmed with him once before he was kidnapped. That was in like spring 2013. And the idea was that that would be a a different film that you started thinking about making. A revolutionary priest. But then two months later, two, two, three months, a few months later, he's in Raqqa and he gets kidnapped. And it was at that point, I didn't actually start this film at that point, but it started the process of like, do we do something? Is it safe to do something? How do we do something? Um, And essentially it was roughly from after that time until kind of the beginning of last year. So that's, yeah, seven years, not full time, you know, going in and out, trying to figure out what to do. You know, it's a whole process of negotiation or questions around safety, questions around possibility. Um, But yeah, sort of over a seven year period of filming, our editing, archives. And how did your perspective of, the, of this story and the context around it change over those years? Do you come into it understanding the world in one way and then things change and then you learn more about the people? Yeah. Uh, and then you're, you're spending time with the people that loved them and talking to them. So, you know, from the beginning and, until it was a uh, completed film, you know, how did your, how did your vision of this, of this story and the world that you're, portraying here how did that change yeah interesting I think I think the thing I really learned was you know how important it was to connect with other people I think you know through Nora's struggles it was it was also the collective work that she did that really helped her keep going it was for Mackie Paolo's sister to connect with something bigger so there's the personal individual pain but connecting with other people is what well, one gave it more strength, but also helped people understand this bigger context. Like it was an individual tragedy, but it's actually also a political crime, you know, um, and to kind of remember that and to help each other through that. And I think I didn't really appreciate that when I was doing it because I was just sort of following it, you know, and, and seeing what happened. And it was through that following, I guess, that uh, that I started to realize that. Um but I guess I also realized something Paolo's sister said that I, that was really touching. So last year we did a screening of the film in Italy and we managed to do it in person, <laughs> although it was COVID time. Um, and it was the one screening we did. But she, the reason she felt it was important to take part in the film, and I think something I learned is she was saying it's really important to share these individual stories. We need to feel the individual pain because if we don't feel it, we might forget. <laughs> you know, as time passes, it's not that she forgets her brother. But time passes, your life moves on, and the pain sort of feels slightly different. And kind of watching it again, connecting with it again in a more immediate way was really important for that bigger political struggle as well. Um, So I think I guess I realized those connections more, the individual and collective, and the importance of those together. Were there times where you were concerned about having all of this material and and wondering if it would be ever confiscated stolen were there security measures that you took that that um that you'd be willing to talk about that that um you know not i'm also interested of course about your own uh security and maybe your feelings about that but the material you're holding on to is yeah. so valuable and so uh specific and it certainly cannot be um i mean you can make copies of it but you can't recreate it um 
were, were you ever worried about that? Because it's, it's, uh, it is such sensitive material. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, my own personal safety, I think, wasn't as much of an issue for me because I am sort of one step removed. You know, I wasn't living in Syria when I was working on this, um, as opposed to other people who are on the ground doing things, and it's much more dangerous for them. Um, but I was concerned. And, you know, we did actually make copies of things and keep them in different houses. Um, but, you know, I think what's interesting, you know, and and we you know, we considered lots of different scenarios. We, we did like a security and safety kind of checklist. You know, we kind of tried to, to recognize what things might happen when we were filming and also after in distribution and tried to kind of see how we might mitigate those things. Um, but it's interesting to ask about security because I think, although it's not about security, I think it's also an issue about getting a film like this, about this issue out there. It's like, it was really hard to get support to make the film, you know, and actually the biggest obstacle was not security. It was actually funding and support bluntly, you know, it wasn't easy. And that's what almost stopped the film being made ultimately. Um, but we managed to find a way, we cobbled it together. We worked together as a team because we really, really felt it was important to finish this. Um, but that was a major obstacle, you know, and not an easy one. Could you talk more about the the funding? I, I think that's interesting, especially because documentaries have become so much more popular and much more visible. Mm. It's always interesting to hear the stories of how these films come together from that perspective, because it is a slog. It's a total slog. And, you know, I mean, it's great. Some films get championed and get support, and that's amazing. But some films don't, you know, and like we really struggle to get this film made. I don't know how to analyze the reason for that, you know, whether it was... Syria fatigue or whether, I don't know, you know, like there's so many reasons that might've been the case. Um, and it's sometimes really disheartening because you're like, I'm part of this industry supposedly, but I'm finding it really difficult to function <laughs> in this industry. And it was really, really tough actually making this film, but it was one of those films that I guess I, let's say I didn't choose to make it sort of happened to me and I couldn't not finish it. You know, like I know Paolo I know Basel, I couldn't just let this go. Like the, the bigger issue was just so, um, I guess, important that I couldn't not see it through. You know, I know it wasn't like a big commercial blockbuster kind of film, but it was like, we need to keep their voices alive. So, you know, I think documentarians probably particularly are very um, good <laughs> at DIY, like figuring out a way through the challenges and obstacles we find. You know, um, it's not to say we didn't get support. We just got limited support, you know. You use the phrase Syria fatigue. Can you tell me what you mean? What you, you know, I, obviously I know, I know what you mean, but like, how have you experienced that as a reaction from people? I'm not sure. It's a hard one to say, I think, but I think there's sometimes a sense that people think like, oh, we've already seen a film about Syria. Or we've already programmed a film about Syria. You know, maybe my film came out at the wrong time because of the cycle of films. But, you know, I have a critique about that as we never say we have American fatigue or British fatigue or French fatigue or Indian fatigue. Like, you know, we're not, I'm, I also think because it's a film kind of about something that's happening in Syria, it's sort of seen as a Syrian film, but it's actually an international question it's filmed in eight different countries you know it's experienced in italian living rooms not just in syria you know so it's kind of um important i think to kind of show that it's a strange one i think to, to know how to analyze completely because i'm sort of in and out of the industry i guess but i i feel like that it 
is a possible obstacle that I faced, <laughs> you know, with the film. And then could you talk about your personal connection to Syria? I mean, you have mm. uh, roots there. Yeah. Um, so um, I'm actually originally Palestinian, but I, uh, my, my, I have Syrian family as well. And it's somewhere I've lived as a child, as an adult. Um, so it's a place I'm very connected with um, and very close to. Yeah, it's somewhere very close to my heart from family and sort of life experiences. Um, and I've made several films about Syria, and I think I probably will end up doing more somehow in the future. Your films about Syria and including including this one, obviously, they're told um, they're, they're these these big stories. They're they're these stories about things that are um, broadly happening in the culture. But you tell the stories through the lens of individual people. So does your personal connection to Syria is that is that what guides that approach? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think also, you know, before the revolution, before twenty eleven. There was a lot less interest in Syria, a lot less films made about Syria, and I had made some things there then. Um, and I think, you know, it was important for me, even then when I was working on, on films there, to kind of show what was happening there, show people's experiences there, because it was just underrepresented, kind of in the larger scheme. I guess post-2011, maybe it's become way more represented, maybe in particular ways represented, but it's, um, I don't know, I think... I think whenever you're connected to somewhere and you can just see so much crap, I guess, about it, it's a very difficult situation. You're like, but there's these really amazing human stories that we just need to share. And I think film has the power to do that. You know, like, yes, Paolo's kidnapped. Maybe he's he's dead. Maybe he's not. I don't know. You know, but we can live with him for an hour. You know, film can allow us to do that. Then finally, I wanted to ask, what do you think people who know just a little bit about what Syria is like and what Syrians are like, what do you think that that they get wrong? What do you think people typically get wrong about what's happening? It's interesting because I think it depends who you're speaking to. But I think, you know, I think sometimes it's just seen as this like really messy war and people don't really understand what happened. But actually, there are certain things that did happen. It is an authoritarian state. It was an authoritarian state that has a large part to why it ended up in the conflict that it is today. It's not just some like easily labeled civil war. It's not like there's two equal sides. You know, it's it's more complex than that. But um, I think it's important to remember that it still is an authoritarian state. <laughs> that's That's the main message i think you know and all the related complexities are there um but that shouldn't take away from that large kind of power structure because that's what's causing so much that's happened there and is happening there um and is kind of the obstacle for kind of making the future better in syria i think that's probably the biggest important thing to kind of keep remembering yeah, when I when I asked you to expand on the idea of Syria fatigue, I think that may be in part what I was trying to get at. Because I, I, my mm. sense is that people just see it as a big mess, and they don't understand yeah. that there are, like you said, specific pieces of the puzzle that, if you took the time to kind of look yeah. at them and make some sense of it, you would be able to understand. It's not completely indecipherable. No, absolutely not. You know, like. It's, it's not, you know, and there's power structures at play that we could talk about, we can recognize, uh, we can critique, it's, it's there. Um, but, you know, if, if you're not connected to the area, if you don't really know what's happening, I can see why it can be very confusing and very kind of, it seems very violent, it just seems like a mess. Um, but, you know, 
one thing films can do, because I'm a filmmaker, that's what I try to do, is like you try to give these little pieces for us to try and understand that bigger picture, you know. And if you watch more things, read more things, hopefully you get that more kind of nuanced understanding of what's happening. All right. Thanks for listening to Movie Maker. And check us out at moviemaker.com, where we post stories about movies, movie making, and movie makers every day. Subscribe to Movie Maker's print magazine, and you can follow us on social media at Movie Maker Mag. Subscribe to this podcast and uh, say something nice about us while you're there, would you? We will be back soon with another episode of Movie Maker, and we hope you will be there to join us. Until then, take good care of yourself.